thinking about this sermon, getting ready for it this week, and I thought to myself, split sermon, how, how many sermons have I listened to in my life? How many have I heard? I thought, well, I'm, I am above 50, and we used to go to two services for many years in Pennsylvania. My dad was the minister, so we had two services in the circuit, so that was for a few years. And then, of course, on all the holy days, we used to have two services for many years. And I went to Ambassador College for four years, and we had forum and assembly, and that was like sermons. You add all those up, take a few out for missing, and I was like, well, I think I've been to over 3,500 sermons. And I thought to myself, you know, how many of those do I remember? And how many of those changed my spiritual life? And how many of those were great? And quite frankly, which one was the greatest one? And it got me thinking, what is the greatest sermon that's ever been given? So I went to the library. Just kidding. <laughs> Susan and I were in a library this week down in Kerrville. We walked in. I was like, wow, look at all these books. It's amazing. Libraries are pretty cool. I actually went to Google, and I typed in, what's the greatest sermon ever? And the first link took me to a 10-volume series of the greatest sermons in the history of recording. And each volume was like that thick. I thought, like, you've got to be kidding me. And so who gave these sermons? It had names like Basil of Caesarea, St. Augustine, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Hugh Latimer, Martin Luther King, and Billy Graham. But none of the ones I had heard. And so I was looking at that, and it also had other lists, not just the greatest sermons. It had things like, what is the shortest sermon that's ever been given? I would have appreciated that when I was a little kid in the church. What's the shortest sermon ever given? And it said that there was a pastor named Martin Balestro who in 2011 read this scripture, Psalms 19.14. He got up and he said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Brethren, don't do anything or say anything this week that would be, make Jesus unhappy. Dismissed. Right? That was one of the shortest ones. And I thought, well, what was one of the longest? I probably have heard one of the longest, I thought to myself. <laughs> At least it seemed that way. <laughs> but I, there was a couple of record breakers. It said that a long time longest, a long time longest, was in 1937. Preacher A. Earl Lee set a record for preaching the longest sermon ever up to that time by preaching continuously for 21 hours. He ate his meals, preaching between eating. He even took a bath. He went behind the curtain and took a bath. He had a microphone with him, apparently he was still speaking. Right? He changed his clothes, and he gave a 21-hour sermon, which I probably think I've been at about a 20-hour one, it felt like, with Mr. Waterhouse years ago. But you know, preacher Earl Lee was displaced just a few years ago. Um, after the, the longest sermon now, the actual title, goes to a preacher from Mount Dora, Florida. And my parents actually live right by Mount Dora, Florida. So does um, a, a few other uh, ministers in our church, too. But in 2015, after more than two days in the pulpit, Pastor, Pastor Zach Zender of Mount Dora, Florida, had set a world record for the longest a speaking marathon for a religious message, the 31-year-old pastor of the Cross Church delivered a 53-hour, 18-minute sermon <laughs> with the help of 200 pages of notes 
and more than 600 PowerPoint slides. Now, my buddy Chris isn't here today, but he has got to improve his game, okay? So he started on Friday, November 7th, and ended at 12, 18 p.m. on Sunday. The church actually organized in shifts. They said, we're going to come in for this shift, and we're going to go home. We're gonna, and so they, they just came in in shifts to keep him going. So that's the longest message. But really, what is considered to be the most famous and greatest sermon ever given? Again, on Google, it says that the title should go to Jonathan Edwards. I've spoken about him before. He was an 18th century Puritan preacher. He gave what many believe is one of the most memorable sermons ever given. You've heard the title before, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We used to read it in school. I don't know if they do that anymore. I've talked about it here in the past. Uh, he embodied pure Puritanism. He was what many consider to be one of the first great minds of America. He was a scientist and a philosopher, an educator, a preacher. And his belief was in the holiness of God and the depravity of man. Some did not like his messages. Oliver Wendell Holmes said that he was barbaric. Mark Twain called him a drunken lunatic. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Joins contended that Puritanism reached its fullest bloom in Edwards. He preached sermons. He did not give lectures. Here's a little taste of one of his messages. They are under a sentence of condemnation of hell, the unrepentant sinners. They do not justly deserve to be cast down hither, but the sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between him and mankind, is gone out against them and stands against them, and so they are bound to everlasting hell. And then he goes on. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. And so he went on for hours every single Sunday. And that was before Stranger Things on Netflix and Cardi B, right? And TikTok. He didn't even have good material to work with back then. Can you imagine if he was alive today? What would he say? But which sermon that you've heard? That's what Google said. That's what some other authorities said were some great messages. What would you say that you have heard or you have read that is the greatest sermon? There's lots of choices. I'd say that the greatest sermon ever given would probably have to be one that God our creator caused to be preserved in his scriptures for all time. And even there we find many choices, don't we? You might immediately go to the Sermon on the Mount, certainly one of the most famous sermons ever. That's undoubtedly one of the greatest. But there is another sermon, one not given by Jesus Christ, but inspired by him, that deserves our consideration, especially as we keep the Holy Day of Pentecost tomorrow. I think you know where I'm going. It was given by the Apostle Peter, and it resulted in the beginning of the New Testament church. 
So prior to the day of Pentecost this evening, let us look at one of the greatest sermons ever given. You know where to turn. I won't even tell you. <laughs> Let's preface Peter's sermon. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Acts. Acts 2, verse 1, sets the stage. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were stay, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And then verse 7, which I think is very interesting. They were all amazed and they marveled, saying one to another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? That's a troll. That's a sarcastic remark. That's a polite way of saying that they were uneducated people, right? That they weren't worthy to speak. Kind of like our critics who discount what we say because we have not come from the most credentialed universities in the schools of theology. We often don't write or speak in Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. Therefore, we can't know anything. Graduates of a small, unaccredited theology school in Big Sandy, Texas, what are you talking about? How ridiculous. Verse 12 to 13, though, shows in that day what those people thought was an explanation for what was happening. They don't know what they're talking about, or they must be drunk. Read verses 12 and 13 with me. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying one to another, Whatever could this mean? And others said, they're full of new wine. Hit a 40, and then they started preaching. But upon hearing those responses, those criticisms, Peter decided he had enough in verse 14. He, but Peter, standing up with the 11 in verse 14, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it, this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That was 9 o'clock in the morning. It's always curious how people latch on to any explanation other than the truth. Right? The ark with all the ant metaphorical, right? Mankind's existence. I think amoeba, fish, frog, lizard, monkey. Here we are. That sounds right to me, right? Jesus, a wise man. And these disciples in front of them saying these things. Drunk. They don't know what they're talking about. Drunk. They're just a bunch of crazy hillbillies, and they don't know what they're talking about is basically what they were saying. Now on that last point, we can stop. While he wasn't a hillbilly, it's still important to note a few things. Peter was a fisherman. He was a laborer. He was a common man. It's true. He had only some seven weeks before this denied that he even knew who Jesus Christ was. And he certainly was not even his disciple. So you can't really say that he was a theologian, right? You can't say that he was a scholar or even a paragon of discipleship. 
Look at this guy. Who is that? But look how God works. Despite those things, now Peter begins what is one of history's most memorable sermons. An insightful sermon. A prophetic sermon. A stirring sermon. A sermon so powerful that the church grew from 120 to 3,120 right then. Right then. How did a common man do that? How did a laborer, how did a fisherman do that? We know the answer. He didn't do it. <laughs> Jesus Christ did it through him. Right? And no one better understood that better than Peter himself. I'll make this point. God will equip his servants with whatever tools and skills they need to serve his great purpose. God called advertising men from Chicago, sharecroppers from Arkansas, and golfers from West Texas to preach inspiring sermons, didn't he? I think of the backgrounds of many of the early church leaders of the church in this 20th and 21st century, and there's hardly a PhD among them. Hardly anyone of any real note to the world. But God used them to powerful ends. But let's go back to Peter. Look at verse 16 with me as he speaks to the crowd. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Oh, wow. Peter's saying that the living God is going to do his will on this earth and that he will equip many more, just like these disciples were reading about in years gone by, to do his mighty work. Blood and fire on the earth and in the heavens with ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the end time. As the plan, the purpose of God unfolds before the eyes of all the nations, it says it is promised it will happen. Verse 21 makes a concluding point as why all these things will happen. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God wants to save everyone. He will suspend the laws of physics. He will shake the foundations of the earth. And he will equip the weak of the world to bring it to pass so that they can see all, but only some will repent and be saved. And Peter goes on to point out that what is happening in their present in those days when he's speaking all the way to us today was just a foretaste. Look at verse 22. Peter begins to explain. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was the man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. 
This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He's saying that the answer is Jesus Christ. And now look down at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter was preaching powerfully about the God of eternity who spoke to you through the prophets who you ignored, then came down here himself, and you ignored what he said. In fact, you didn't ignore it. You didn't like it, and so you killed him. The Curios and the Christos, the Master and Messiah, the Anointed One, disregarded and hated and ultimately violently killed. What was their reaction when they heard this? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Oh boy. The word cut is katanasos, and it means to pierce thoroughly and to greatly agitate and to sting deeply down in there, deeply. John Gill, as a Bible commentator, describes it this way. The word of God entered into them and was a sharp sword in them, which cut and laid open their hearts in the sin and weakness of them. They saw themselves guilty of the crimes laid to their charge. They were filled with remorse of conscience. They felt pain and uneasiness. They were seized by horror and trembling. They were wounded in their spirits. They were hewn and cut down by the prophets and the apostles and slain by the words of his mouth. They were as dead men to their own understanding. Whether it was, as Mr. Townsend just polled, this year or 50 years ago, when you counsel for baptism, was that part of what you were thinking? What was it that brought you to repentance? Did we not all contemplate the price that was paid for us and how? Were we not cut to the heart? Were we not agitated? Were we not stung deeply to our inner being? Think back. I believe you were. I think so. Then Peter gives us the model for the receiving of God's Holy Spirit in New Testament times. Look at verse 38. Verse 38 and 39. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. You and I are mentioned right there. This is a far, far away from Mesopotamia, from the Fertile Crescent, from the Middle East, by time and by distance. That is talking about all of us, right? So what a sermon and what a day of Pentecost this was that added 3,000 members in one day. I was wondering, how long did it take to baptize 3,000 people? <laughs> I grew up in the church, as I just said. I remember one time in Ellicott City, Maryland, in John and Jenny Cook's basement, after church, we baptized six people. 
And of course, the buffet with the whole wheat bread and carob cookies was upstairs waiting for us. But I was super hungry, and six people, that took a really long time, right? And my dad tells of the time when he was in Big Sandy, when they baptized behind the uh, Redwood Room, 40 people, 40 people were baptized. It's like, wow, what about 3,000? What would that be like? It would be amazing. I want to continue in chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Acts, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And here comes a really fascinating story. Verse 2. And a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried. He'd been, always been handicapped. Whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, what is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And Peter fastened his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. What can we learn from this today? When we were called by God, it was as if he commanded us to get up and start walking on the path that leads to eternal life, not wherever it was that we were going, right? Now, I'm sure there were times in this lame man's life where he tried to get up and walk, but he couldn't. He always failed. When God called each of us, I'm sure that we've tried to walk the way, and we too also failed, got off course, right? We discovered we couldn't do it on our own. We needed, as it just says there in that scripture, a helping hand. Maybe that's where the saying comes from. We could no more really walk on the path of life by ourselves than this man could have gotten up on his own and walked to the next city. Isn't it amazing what all of these seemingly old stories really mean as analogies? What did he walk like? Look at verse 8. And he, leaping, stood up and walked and entering with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. He didn't hold on to a pillar. He didn't fall back down. I can't do it. He didn't stumble and teeter, walk slowly behind them. He jumped up. He followed Peter and John into the temple. He walked briskly. He was even leaping for joy. This is how we should all walk in the way of life that God has called us to. Not making up every single worry and concern that we can about every single thing that could possibly go wrong, being worried and fearful all the time, being miserable. This gentleman was joyful. He had a pep in his step, a spring. Verses 9 and 10. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he who was sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And now my concluding point from this story. Verse 11. 
Now the lame man who was called held on to Peter and John. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. Notice that he not only followed Peter and John while praising God, but he held on to them. And he wasn't holding on to them because he needed help to stand up. He was embracing them in joy and hugging them and holding on to them. I think Clark's commentary hits it right on the head when it says, he felt the strongest affection for them as the instruments by which the divine influence of God was converted to his diseased body. There is a lesson here which is rarely acknowledged today. The man here gave God the glory and the credit as he should, but he also greatly appreciated those who were instruments in God's hand for bringing this marvelous event to pass. <laughs> in this great age of criticism, ungratefulness, I think we can have a special place in our hearts for those who have been used by God to bring us to the truth. As we just saw in the poll that Mr. Townsend gave, we have many members in Chicago who have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years or more as Christians. Can you think of those who have helped you to be here today? I think of the electric atmosphere in St. Petersburg as the global telecast, as it was called back then, came on and Mr. Armstrong said, greetings, brethren, round the world. The Bible classes from men like Ames and Pinelli, Hay, McCullough, Hegvold, Neff, Dorothy, Waterhouse. The years of pastoring and SEP and YOU from men like Register and Servideo and Evans and Nelson and Ward and Frankel and Moody and it goes on and on and on and all the men whose names we know today who help us. There are many others, I'm sure you could make your own list. What did these mentors who went before us have in common? They were all servants of God, even though they may have been flawed and imperfect and common, just like you and me, just like Peter, John, and Paul. One of the great lessons for this Pentecost in 31 AD is that God called ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He will do the same in the end time using the weak of the world to confound the mighty. He will use all of us if we continue to appreciate his calling, if we remain deeply thankful for the path that leads to everlasting life, and if we are truly thankful for those who have helped us to be here today. <laughs>